wonderfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my unformed substance, and your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when, when none of, of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them for the word of God for the people of God. Praise God. Your, uh, your comments about uh, Australia and the fires and um, some of your concern. I spoke to some people this morning and um, a lot of people ask um, about the extent of and the severity of, of the fires. I'm not as many more informed, I think, than anybody here. My, my parents do live close to some of the areas, and I mentioned um, this morning that the air quality they have mentioned is very poor. And um, they're older, so that affects them quite a bit, as you can imagine. Um, I might just make a comment. This is an article I read, and uh, because it's, it's intrigued me too as to uh, why things might be the way that they are. And um, this article is very informative. Perhaps if, if you haven't read it, then uh, I'll relate it to you. Um, it was a New York Times article, I think. And um, it went on to say, part of the reason that this has become a problem in Australia and why Australians are becoming outraged, Australia has been a, a very good country to its people. They've actually solved, so to speak, a lot of um, social issues in Australia. Not solved, but it's, it's become a, a good place to live. It's, Australians don't have a, a great problem with healthcare. They live very well because, it's, because the Australian government has made it where it's socialized medicine. Not everybody agrees with that. Um, but everybody pays so that everybody has a basic access to healthcare. Um, pensions, the same thing. Everybody pays so that everybody has some form of a pension. In Australia, I think currently, all employers are required to pay 9% of, uh, of a person's income out of their own um, income, the, the uh, business's income, so that you can have, besides the government income, a separate, separate pension so that you don't always have to rely on the government. Um, and Australians have been relatively good at pivoting. Uh, guns is another, another issue. There was a mass shooting in Australia about know, 20 years ago now, I think. At the time, it was the worst mass shooting in the, in, uh, the world. And the Australians were so outraged they um, banned a number of assault rifles and limited access to weapons and put background checks in place. They did not take guns away from Australians. They limited access to guns. And as a result, Australia has never had a mass shooting since. And they have had a number of ways that they've addressed issues, outraged as they were, and, or, or had seen what was coming on the horizon, and have made life decent enough for themselves, except the question of climate change. This article pointed out that in Australia, the coal industry is like the NRA in the United States. Uh, and, and this isn't a comment on any of these lobbies. It's not a comment on guns. It's the fact that the NRA in the United States is a fairly small membership, I think 5 million. But for some reason, they are able to hold a disproportionate voice in the United States. And a lot of lawmakers are um, beholden to the NRA's um, whims. And, and again, that's not a political comment. That's, that's, a, that's a reality of, of how the NRA has operated in the United States. And so policy is set uh, in many, many ways, runs along NRA lines. And in Australia, that's the coal industry. 
And when it comes to climate change in, in Australia, many, many lawmakers deny climate change. And, and again, you, you can agree or disagree with that. But this problem right here is what Australians are grappling with at the moment. And where it goes from here, I don't know. But Australia has been warned for many years, their own scientists have said, that the future shows Australia is going to be on the front lines of whatever climate change is occurring, whatever the uh, climate on Earth, whether we have a lot to do with it or not as human beings, is, is again debatable. And some of you may be debating that, that yourselves. But um, that will be a, Australia will be a front line in that, uh, in that argument. And I'm sure we will have, um, there'll be quite a lot of discussion in Australia after this. People are very angry by what they see. And um, hopefully, uh, it won't be as bad as it has been. I know um, the, the animals that have suffered is, uh, is uh, you know, it's atrocious, it's terrible. Some of the footage I've seen has been uh, very distressing. So, hopefully the future will look a lot brighter than it is at current. So today, we're going to talk about women. Finally! We'll put them in their place. Well, hopefully it won't be uh, too disjointed because, of course, the topic is a vast one. What do you think is similar between McDonald's, Meineke, and Merrymaids? And the smart people say, hey, it'll start, they all start with M. But the real answer is they're all examples of franchises. Franchising is estimated to be responsible for about 60% of all jobs created in the United States in any given year. Very strong driver of economic activity. To save franchising is vastly important. It's an extreme understatement. But it may surprise you to know that franchising wasn't invented by Ray Kroc of McDonald's, some people mistakenly claim, or Isaac Singer of the Singer Corporation, as some others have claimed. Franchising does not stem from hamburgers or stitches, but it began in beauty. Martha Matilda Harper was a Canadian-born maid employed in the household of a wealthy Toronto doctor's family, where she cleaned. She made the beds, washed the clothes. And somewhere along the way, she acquired a new and fairly secret recipe for shampoo, which was a lot better than the quacky stuff that you could buy at that time. It was more scientifically based. And the doctor, at the same time, had taught young Martha the elements of physiology to help her self-education. And with it, she had a secret desire to one day run her own business. By 1888, Martha had ferreted enough money away to arrive in New York and consider opening her own hairdressing salon. But a couple of blows befell her almost immediately when she arrived. She became sick to the point of exhaustion, only recovering when she was visited by a healing practitioner from the Christian science faith who came to pray with her. And a second blow, of course, was the New York authorities who denied her the license for a public hairdresser's salon. A woman in business was shocking enough. But a woman carrying on hairdressing and skincare in a public place? Scandalous. She hired a lawyer, and with part of her savings, she won her case, and she opened her hairdressing salon. Her sickness, oddly enough, proved to be a boon. 
because Martha was now propelled by a business philosophy that included the principles of Christian living. The Harper method, as she called it, was as much about servicing the soul as it was about cutting hair. She began to teach her clients that they could all glow with God-given beauty if they adhered to very simple principles of cleanliness, good nourishment, exercise, and breathing. She even designed the first reclining hair shampooing chair. And Martha's salon became a resounding success. Celebrities came from out of town to experience the Harper method. And they began to urge her to open salons in their cities. And Martha considered this. And this is the point at which her ethical compass inspired her crowning innovation. Because instead of commissioning a company paid agent or a manager to oversee the salons she opened, she instead installed working class women just like herself in salons exactly like hers, dedicated to her methods and her innovative products. And she quickly had a network of over 500 salons. They were in North America, South America, in Asia and in Europe. But the women she installed were not paid salaries as employees of hers. Instead, they actually owned the Harper's salons. Because Martha had concluded what was good enough for the Calvin Coolidge's of the day, the Jacqueline Kennedys or the Helen Hayes of the world, was good enough for the rest of us. And her Christian ethics had led her to empower and embolden other women just like her. She didn't only see profit in people, she saw potential. And today, men and women of all backgrounds operate franchises in a variation of what Martha Matilda Harper set up in the late 1800s. The only Harper salon still in operation today is the original one in New York City. But Martha's franchising innovation is all around us. Regular folk, folk whom you'll meet when you go to a Domino's Pizza or the UPS store. They're hardworking, they're emboldened to be owners, chasing their dreams. And they do so because well over a hundred years ago, a woman with a head for business and a Christian heart set it in motion. Ideally, this kind of story would be strewn throughout the pages of the Bible. But when I first read the Bible many years ago, I've got to be honest, I found it kind of disappointing. Disappointing that none of the 66 books in it were written by a woman, at least not that we know of. Admittedly, it's not known who wrote the book of Hebrews. Authorship has typically been attributed to Paul, but really no one knows. Whoever wrote the book really loved Christ, that much is pretty evident. And it's possible that one of Jesus' female disciples wrote it, we just don't know. But we do know that of the nearly 400 big books considered for placement in the Bible, about 
a dozen, I think, maybe 15 or so, were written by women. But none of them found their way into the Bible. And after reading the Bible, I got to wondering about this. And the best answer I could come up with, and it is my answer, admittedly, is that God allows humans to do His work here on earth. Sure, He inspires. Sure, He opens doors. Of course He does. But it's humans with all of our myriad failings that carry the torch for Christ. And I reckon that in this setting, 300 years after the resurrection of Christ, that it was still a man's world. And authority on many things still lay in the hands of men. Yet the life of Christ, interestingly enough, offers us a perspective, I think, on maybe what God would really have preferred. I've long suspected, and perhaps you have too, that one of the more startling aspects of Christ's ministry was his interaction with women. With Jesus, a woman didn't need a man to decide for her. This new covenant he offered was shared equally. There's a great example of this, which can be lost if we're not always aware of the cultural setting that it was set in. Jesus traveled extensively, as we all know, over much of the area of Judea. And when his ministry became increasingly and incredibly successful, it even eclipsed that of John the Baptist, of course, it became increasingly dangerous for him to travel. The religious authorities of the day began to plot to do away with him. At the same time, the Jews held very little regard for the Samaritans. Samaria was not a place where Jews traveled to or through. They skirted it. But when Christ was in some danger, it's recorded that without hesitation, in John chapter 4, he did just that. John 4 verse 4 says this, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sishar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was late in the day. Now think about that statement for just a moment. Your creator, the creator of all this wonder that surrounds us, powerful beyond comprehension, became human. He'd walked for much of the day, and he was tired. And as he sat by the well, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Christ asked her, will you give me a drink? Christ had in this instant given a further glimpse at the scope of this new covenant because he had addressed and put on an even footing not only a Samaritan whom the Jews despised, but a Samaritan woman, not exactly the cultural norm of the day, and even she recognizes this when she replies to Christ, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? And this became very characteristic of Jesus' ministry. Women sharing very equally in the gospel. There was another time. Jesus was asked by an official of a synagogue, to cure his daughter, and along the way, a crowd had gathered, 
And a woman with an issue of blood for over a decade had faith enough to believe that if she just touched her Savior, she would be healed. And as Christ felt the power leave him, he asked, who touched me? By religious standards, he was now ritually unclean. But Jesus pivots away from this religious leader and he puts his intention entirely on this woman. And if the woman expects him to be angry with her for approaching, for touching, for making him ritually unclean, she is greatly surprised. He says nothing of her ritual impurity, but instead he addresses her as daughter. He says, your faith has saved you. And he tells her to go in peace. The story's in Luke chapter 8, by the way. And yet again, Jesus had cut through the cultural norms of the day to show the equality that both men and women had with him. And further still, the gospel writers were inspired to write of the many female disciples who accompanied Christ and who supported his ministry. And to some people, a female disciple is a surprise, but there were many. In Luke 8, 1 through 3, Jesus is described as journeying from village to village, preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God. It says the 12, obviously the 12 disciples are with him, and it says several women. Mary called Magdalene, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, Shuzar, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. And over the years, as I began to read these snippets in the Bible and in the biblical record, I began to realize just how much God had inspired the male writers to include women and elevate their role. You know, in, in history, societies, families, businesses, even churches, unfortunately, have always missed out on a full voice or a fuller picture when they have suppressed the voice or the involvement of a certain group of people. Think about cars, for instance. It's a guy thing, right? Automobiles and their design, it's the bastion of men. We're all about motors and gears and speed. I remember reading an article in a magazine several years ago, and it was an interview with the first ever female vice president at GM, and she'd been tasked with overseeing interior design. And she began to speak in the article of how vehicles were not well designed for women. A businesswoman ex exiting a vehicle in a skirt wanted to protect her modesty. The pedals can be awkward, knobs and access points points aren't always fitted for smaller hands. And over the course of the article, she pointed out her vision for interior design elements, how they could be tweaked and changed to be more appealing to what is essentially half the car buying public. All things in vehicle design that men would never have considered. And GM has benefited from that, as have their vehicle owners. In fact, GM today has a female CEO. There's a feminist joke that says, God created man. He looked him over, 
And he said, nah, I can do better than that. So we created woman. Half of you roughly think that's true. <laughs> but Solomon offers a more nuanced approach when he wrote in Proverbs 31, a woman of noble character is worth more than rubies. She considers a field and she buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sees that her trading is profitable. She opens her arms to the poor and she extends her hands to the needy. These writings seem incredibly more relevant today than they did in the patriarchal society of Solomon's day. The woman he describes is in business. She's successful at it. She doesn't forget where she came from as she shares with those who have less than she. She sounds like she's made quite an impact. Oddly enough, she sounds a lot like Martha Matilda Harper and her innovation of franchising. Or maybe Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Africa's first female head of state and a Nobel Peace Prize winner. She helped Liberia heal after a civil war. Or Malala, and if you should know that name, the Pakistani teenager who advocated for education for all girls. Despite a near successful assassination attempt, also a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Or Isabel Kocher, a French businesswoman, CEO of the world's largest private energy company. She has a plan to shift her company in the next three years to totally renewable energy and away from fossil fuels. And to think that women were only given the legal right to vote in this, a democratic country, in 1920. What on earth were we thinking? I've been impacted by several very fine women in my lifetime. And I'm sure any man here can attest to the same. I don't know what my outlook would be without their influence. I literally can't imagine. And thanks to God's wisdom, I don't have to. I'm going to read you a little something. I'm not sure who the author is, but there's great truth in it. When God created woman, he was working late on the sixth day. An angel came by and asked, why spend so much time on her? The Lord answered, have you seen all the specifications I have to meet, to shape her? She must function in all kinds of situations. She must be able to embrace several kids at the same time. She must have a hug that can heal anything from a bruised knee to a broken heart. She must do all this with only two hands. She cures herself when sick, and she can work 18 hours a day. The angel was impressed. Just two hands? Impossible. And this is the standard model? The angel came closer and he touched the woman. But you've made her so soft, Lord. She is soft, said the Lord, but I've made her strong. You can't imagine what she can endure, what she can overcome. Can she think, the angel asked. The Lord answered, not only can she think, she can reason and she can negotiate. The angel touched her cheeks, Lord, 
it seems, this creation is leaking. You've put too many burdens on her. She's not leaking. It is a tear, the Lord corrected the angel. What's it for? asked the angel. The Lord said, tears are a way of expressing her grief, her doubts, her love, her loneliness, her suffering, and her pride. This made a big impression on the angel. Lord, you're a genius. You thought of everything. A woman is indeed marvelous. The Lord said, indeed she is. She has strength that amazes a man. She can handle trouble and can ha carry heavy burdens. She holds happiness, love, and opinions. She smiles when she feels like screaming. She sings when she feels like crying. She cries when happy, and she laughs when afraid. She fights for what she believes in. Her love is unconditional. Her heart is broken when a next of kin or a friend dies, but she finds strength to get on with life. The angel asked, so she is a perfect being? The Lord replied, no, she has one drawback. She often forgets what she is worth. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, the promises that you give us, the uh, fact that you treat us all as equals. We thank you for what you've given us. We thank you for the potential that we have ahead of us. And we ask, as men, that we would be much more receptive to and much more understanding of the roles that you have given to women and the uh, great impact that they make on our lives, the great impact, in fact, that they've made on our society and the increasing impact that they're going to make on our society. We thank you for all of your creation, and we ask, as we do always, that you stay with us and that you guide us in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.